want to begin with, John, that light's extra bright today. <laughs> I want to begin with an update on Cody. I just got word that uh, they will not have to uh, operate on him again, which is a huge praise. And um, he does, however, have pneumonia in his left lung. And so they think that he will be at UAB for at least uh, 48 hours uh, so that he can be treated for that and can recover. And so uh, continue to pray for him, text him, uh, Facebook him, email him, whatever you need to do. Um, but as I shared with you last week, uh, this, is, this has been a profound discouragement to him in the last few days, uh, just not healing as quickly as he would have wanted to. And many of you have known Cody a lot longer than I have, and you know he's always been active, he's always had, always had a great work ethic, and he's just not able to do the things that he knows uh, God has called him to do. And so please continue to pray for him, pray especially for Megan as she cares for him and the, the rest of his family as they take care of the girls and, and do all of those things. So be in prayer for him, and uh, we'll continue to update you. Uh, anything else new that we have, uh, Facebook's a good way to do that. We'll also text you if we get new updates, and so I know you'll be faithful um, to pray. I also want to share with you, before we begin our text today, we're in Matthew chapter 14 again, if you've got your Bibles. Um, I just would ask that you would even be in prayer in your heart this morning for me. It's been a, it's been a, a long week, um, and uh, I, I, I don't have anything else to give um, today. Uh, many of you know that I went to South Carolina for a whirlwind trip to preach the funeral of my aunt. I thank you for praying for that, if you did. Um, it went well, but it was a very quick trip and uh, under very sad circumstances. And so it's just been a long week. And I have a sick baby at home, so that capped it off this morning. Um, so, God gives us strength, right? And he shines through in our weakness. And so I appreciate you all being faithful to pray for all of your pastors in these times. Let's look at Matthew chapter 14 together. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to begin in verse 13. We're going to read down through verse 21. Matthew 14 beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. And now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And so Jesus said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Father, we do ask you for strength. We ask you for grace. And Father, we, we know that the scriptures say that you uh, give it freely and that you uh, give it abundantly and that you give it even to degrees more than we think we need. And so this morning... I pray for myself that you would give me grace. I pray for Cody that you would give him grace and for Megan. And Father, for the countless other situations in this room right now that require grace. 
and require your spirit to overcome and require your love to overcome. I pray right now that you would personalize that grace for every brother and sister in this room. And I pray there might be some some among us who may not know the grace about which we speak. I pray that this morning you would capture their hearts, that you would overwhelm them with grace and that you would convince them of their need for a Savior. Father, we know you are faithful to do these things in accordance with your will. And so we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning, what I want to do is, as we continue in Matthew, the book of Matthew, I want us to talk about how Jesus um, is a compassionate provider. He, he gives us compassionate provision. And you know, that it's one thing to be given provisions. It's one thing to be given uh, something that you need in a, in a moment of crisis, but it's an entirely different thing to be given provision in a compassionate way. I think about even right now in, in the aftermath of Hurricane Matthew, many of you know that um, the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are a part, has a, a massive disaster relief operation. And these men and women travel to these disaster-stricken areas, and they, they don't just take food, and they don't just take supplies, they take compassion. They take the love of Christ into dark and desperate situations to convince people that there is a God who loves them. That there is a God who is concerned for them. There is a God who cares about the destruction that has come into their lives. Well, in this morning's text, things are a lot calmer. There hasn't been a great hurricane. There hasn't been a great natural disaster. It's just normal people with normal needs. And so before we jump in here to, chapter, to the second part of chapter 14, I want to remind you that as we've been going through the book of Matthew, Matthew has a very specific purpose in his writing. It's maybe not his singular purpose, but it is his overarching purpose, namely to convince the readers, to convince the first century readers and to convince 21st century readers that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one uh, that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, that he is the one that was even spoken about as far back as Genesis chapter 3 when sin came into the world, but God promised that sin would be defeated, that sin would be overcome. And for thousands of years, God gave hints to his people Israel through the prophets and through the patriarchs that one day the Messiah would come, that one day the Deliverer would come. And Matthew intends to say to all of us, today is that day. Right then, when Jesus was living, through the miracles that he was performing, through the acts of forgiveness that he gave to people, through the healings and the miraculous provisions, that he is the one that they have been expecting. But as we learned last week, there were many in Israel who were confused about the identity of the Messiah. There were many people in Israel, namely last week we looked at Herod, who thought that perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. That perhaps this was John the Baptist who had come back and was playing some kind of weird trick on him after he had cut his head off and performing these miracles and undermining Herod's authority. We even saw before that when Jesus had gone into his hometown of Nazareth and he was rejected. When his own family and his own friends looked at him and said, I don't know who you are, but you are not who you say you are. You you are not the one 
that we have been waiting for. You are not the Messiah sent to deliver us. I don't know who you are, but you are not him. And so there's been, there's been much confusion around the identity of Jesus. And so Matthew, I think, rightly puts this story right here, not on accident. He, he has shared with us how Jesus has been misinterpreted, how people have misidentified him. And so Matthew seeks to say, in case you need more evidence, here we go. So we'll pick up there in chapter, in, in verse 13, he says, Now when Jesus heard this, we have to ask, what did he hear about? And again, I told you last week that these verse and chapter divisions can get a little bit strange for us and they can kind of throw us off. So we're not talking about Jesus hearing about the death of John the Baptist. We have, we have that interaction recorded in other parts of the Gospels and he's saddened by that. But no, no, we have to go back up to the very first part of chapter 14. Jesus is hearing about Herod's interpretation of him. Jesus is hearing that Herod thinks that there's something really strange going on with the resurrection of John the Baptist coming back from the dead. That's what Matthew is referring to. When he says when Jesus heard this, he's talking about hearing about Herod's wrong interpretation of him. And of course, Jesus knows that Herod's reputation is deadly. <laughs> Jesus no doubt knew what happened to John the Baptist at this point. Jesus no doubt knew that if Herod had his way, he would just assume kill him too. And so what does Jesus do? His time has not yet come. It is not time for him to go to the cross. And so in verse 13, we see he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus made a habit of this, didn't he? He made a habit of going off by himself, of retreating away from the crowds and away from those who needed him and away from those who put all kinds of pressures and demands on him to just go be with his father. Jesus knew how important that was, but that's not the main point of this particular story. It says here, when the crowds heard it, so when the crowds heard all of this, and then they heard that Jesus was going away, they followed him on foot from the towns. Now, most of you probably know, a handful of you have, have been there, I think, that the Sea of Galilee is maybe not aptly named. It is not a sea. It is not a huge body of water. It's only a few miles across, and at some points, it's very, very narrow, and so Jesus is out on a boat, but the crowds know how to get around to where he's going quicker than he gets there. And so they make their way around the Sea of Galilee. They make their way across the Jordan River, and they're waiting for him in verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. In verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy, to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And so catch the picture here. Jesus has just heard about uh, the treachery of Herod. He has just heard about Herod's misinterpretation of who he is. And so he withdraws, but the crowds follow him. He cannot hide. And he sees them, and we can't miss this. We cannot miss this. That he sees them with compassion. You see, sometimes we are tempted to think that God is distant from us. Sometimes we are tempted to think that God set the world in motion and then he just kind of steps back and lets nature take its course. That he just kind of steps back and lets things happen outside of his purview and outside of his control. Properly, we call that worldview deism 
where people will say, yeah, I believe in a God. I, I believe that we have a creator, but that's as far as it goes. I don't believe that he is intimately involved in my life. I don't believe that he has a hand in my everyday decisions. I don't believe that he actually cares who I marry, where I go to school, the job that I have, the place that I live, the career that I choose, etc. But Christians, you and I, we know better than this. We know that God became a man so that he might sympathize with us. We know that the scriptures teach that we have a high priest, that being Jesus, who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, every single one of them. And so God God is not impersonal. God is not distant from us. And I think when we see these little pictures here, when when Jesus, the God-man, looks at the crowds, he didn't just say, well, that sure is a bummer that they're sick. Somebody ought to do something about that. No, he, he had compassion on them. He was moved in his spirit. We get a little uncomfortable with that. I know I do. When I think about God being moved, when I think about God having emotions, when I think about God being motivated by compassion, I think, well, how does that make him perfect? How how does that make him not swayed in the same way that I am and that you are by our emotions and by our circumstances? And the answer to that question is, ready? I have no idea. I have no idea how a God who can possess emotions, who can, who can possess all of the full realm of human experience, and yet never sin, and yet never be moved, and yet never change any part of his character, never alter any part of his plan, never let you and I down in his promises, I honestly do not know how that works. Because you and I have never met a human being like that. The nicest person we have ever met, the, most, the person with the most integrity that you and I have ever met, has chinks in their armor. They, they have moments where they fail profoundly. They have moments where they sin deeply. We all do. We all do. And yet Jesus, Jesus the God-man, has compassion on these crowds. He is not cold. He is not distant from them. He sees the need that they have. And although this passage, this story, is about a miraculous feeding, we can't skip over the very last part of verse 14. And he says, and he healed their sick. He healed their sick. Remember, Matthew's objective here is to convince us that Jesus has authority over all things. That he has authority over creation. That he has authority over natural events. That he has authority to forgive sins, as we saw a few chapters ago. That, yes, he even has authority over diseases. And in some cases, demons. Jesus has authority over all of those things. And Matthew is intent to continue building a case, to continue prosecuting the case, if you will, giving us evidence after evidence after evidence that Jesus really is the Messiah. And he's especially concerned to do it in a way that speaks to the needs of the people, right? That speaks to real human interactions. And we see this, Jesus had compassion on them and he healed they're sick. And then he says this interesting thing to the disciples, or rather they begin the conversation. Jesus, this is a desolate place, as if he needed to know that information. This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Again, 
Jesus is probably not surprised. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, verse 16, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, put yourself in the place of the disciples. If if we were to ask how this particular passage of Scripture applies to us, that's a difficult question to ask because none of us are ever going to multiply loaves and fish. None of us were present when this was here. And so who can we most identify with here? Certainly we might be able to identify with the crowd. But I think most importantly, if we consider ourselves a follower of Christ, if we consider ourselves a disciple, we identify with the disciples. And so put yourself in the place of the disciples. And Jesus looks at you and says, they're not going anywhere, guys. You're the waiters. Not only are you the waiters, you're the chef. So get busy. Now, just just imagine how that moment hung in the air. Think back a couple of chapters ago, not even a couple of chapters ago, just a few verses ago, when, when Jesus asked the disciples after he finished teaching in parables, he says, have you understood? And how did the disciples answer? They say, yes. Yes. And we talked about on that day how that was a very suspect yes. That was a very... Um, <laughs> those of us who've read all the Gospels, we think, well, I don't think they were telling entirely the truth because they really messed up. Wednesday night, if you were here, we talked about how Peter, the the disciple among disciples, continued to misunderstand Jesus, continued to deny him, continued to not really understand and comprehend what was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we learned that at that time, I think the disciples were telling the truth. They were saying with all integrity they had, yes, Jesus, we understand the things you've been teaching but they by no means understood the fullness of what Jesus intended to do. They by no means understood this. And in fact, it won't be until the first chapter of Acts, it won't be until Jesus is ascended into heaven that they really, really fully crystallize in their minds the mission that Jesus had for them. So they're not there yet. And neither are we. Right? If we are Jesus' modern disciples, if we are his followers... Again, we can say yes to him. We can say yes in obedience. We can say, yes, Lord, I'll go to this place. I'll talk to this person. I'll minister in this way. But those of us who have walked this journey for a while know that that doesn't mean we understand it all. (laughs) That doesn't mean that we've got it all figured out. That doesn't mean that we're not going to maybe fail the next test. It just means that we need to be faithful in following. That we need to be like 11 of the 12 disciples and be faithful in following Jesus. And so he says, all right, guys, put your aprons on. It's time to serve, time to cook. Verse 17, again, disciples, just informative fellows that they are. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. So Jesus said, bring them to me. Verse 19, and then he ordered the crowds to sit down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. So let's stop right there. I want us to think about, I want us to back up a little bit into the Old Testament. Because you remember, also one of Matthew's themes is uh, a frequent quotation and frequent usage of Old Testament passages and Old Testament um, allusions and Old Testament stories to kind of inform his readers, many of whom were Jews, that yes, Jesus really is your Messiah. And here's how I can prove it. Well, right here, we don't have any direct quotes. We don't, we don't have any, you know, Isaiah said such and such, or Jeremiah said it this way. We don't have that. But what we have here is a little bit of background that I think if we read carefully, 
we can see how it might, it might would have spoken directly to the hearts of those original people there seeing and watching what was unfolding and certainly would have spoken to the hearts of the disciples. It makes me think of John chapter 1, verse 29. It's one of my favorite verses. John uh, looks at Jesus. He sees Jesus coming uh, down the road, and he, he says to the crowd, John does, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, I teach this passage in our New Christians class to our kids when we're talking about the Passover, and I ask the kids, Do you think John the Baptist was confused and thought Jesus looked like a sheep? Of course, the kids say, no, I don't think that. Then what was John saying? John was saying to all of those faithful Jews gathered there who would have celebrated the Passover every year faithfully, hey, here is the Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. Matthew does something similar. Matthew tells a story in such a way that those faithful Jewish hearers and those faithful Jewish readers will pick up on some of those subtleties. And so perhaps you have, you have picked up on some of these in reading this story. But there's a couple of, um, of stories I want to draw your attention to. One being the story of Elijah. A few weeks ago, I think this was in our Sunday school lesson, where Elijah uh, and the prophets of Baal go after each other. It's really a remarkable story because Elijah heckles the prophets of Baal. He heckles them. And then he kills them when it's all said and done. And you would think, you would think that nothing could stop Elijah at that point. That nothing could derail him from his mission. That nothing could separate him from that feeling that he had that God was on his side and that things were going well for him. But you know the story. In a few short hours, he gets word that this evil, wicked queen is going to murder him. And so what does he do? He flees. And he runs to a cave and he suffers from depression. He is distraught. And if you know the story, again, we see such a picture of a compassionate provider in the God that we serve. Because what does he do? He sends him provisions. He says, Elijah, this journey is too hard for you. This, this journey is too difficult. You cannot do it by yourself. Eat. Eat. You think about Israel in the wilderness. You think about after the Exodus. You, you, you think about the grumbling. You think about the complaining. You think about even some of them uttering the phrase, if we had only stayed in Egypt. And yet what does God do in the wilderness, in the desolate place? He provides. He provides. He gives them manna and he gives them quail to eat. Well, fast forward. Israel is in a time of exile. They're living under Roman tyranny. They are not where they are supposed to be spiritually. They are not being ruled by godly people as we established last week. They are not being served well by their religious leaders, the Pharisees. They're very much in exile. Very much in exile. And so here Jesus is in a desolate place. Some of your Bibles may say in the wilderness. And he provides. He provides. He looks up to heaven. He gives a blessing. And he provides. Now that's not a perfect 
correlation. You know, they weren't supposed to collect more manna than they needed. And we have leftovers here. We'll talk about that in just a second. And certainly there weren't birds involved, ravens that brought food to the crowd like there was in, in, in Elijah. But we're not necessarily looking for direct parallels here. What we're looking for is a revelation of the character of God. We're looking to see how God reveals himself to his people. And in this moment, he reveals himself as a compassionate provider. I wonder, do we, do we see him that way? Do we, do we come to him on those terms? Do we, do we really believe that the provisions we are given are given in a compassionate way? That we are provided with the things that we need by a personal and loving God and not just by some kind of mechanical, robotic, vague creator? It's a question that we have to ask. And all of us, if, if we're honest, we, we sometimes question that. We sometimes question the compassion of God. But, but don't forget and don't miss out on the fact that Jesus is saying, listen, I am the greater Moses. And Matthew's going to great lengths to say, you, you thought Elijah was impressive? Consider Jesus. All of those Old Testament figures, right, all of them pointed forward to Christ. God used Moses, imperfect man that he was, to bring Israel out of bondage. And now God is using Jesus Christ to bring Israel and his people out of spiritual bondage. And even to this day, that is what God wants to do through the person of Jesus Christ. He wants to, he wants to bring us out of the exile that we're in, out of the spiritual darkness that we're in. Paul, Paul puts it this way, that once we were in the kingdom of darkness and then we were transformed into the kingdom of light. That's what God wants to do for us through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what he wanted to do for the people of Israel and so many of them missed it. So many of them did not see what God was doing. So many of them were blinded by so many things that they could not see the compassionate provision in the person of Jesus Christ. They could not see it. Friends, let us not be guilty of that same sin. Let us not be guilty of missing the compassionate provision of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a little bit of background for us in the Old Testament. But what about the questions that exist in this passage? What about the questions that exist particularly, again, for the disciples and then for us as modern-day disciples and followers of Christ? So let's look back. They rightly assess the situation, don't they? So let's not be too hard on them quickly. They say, Jesus is a desolate place. There's huge crowds. Uh, there's some towns around here. Maybe they can go in the town and find some food. Okay, fair enough. But then they don't have an excuse anymore because Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, a lot of commentators disagree on, on this, whether or not Jesus was asking them to perform the miracle, whether or not he was testing their fate in that specific way, or whether he was just saying, hey guys, get ready. You're now going to be a part of serving the crowds. You're going to be a part of serving the body. And, and I think that, that part really bears a little bit more weight for us because what was the job of the apostles in the early church? It was to go forth and serve the church. It was to go forth and feed the church primarily through the word of God. But then we also see that followers of Jesus, servants of Jesus, would even in Acts chapter 6, would actually physically, literally feed people. If you remember the story 
of the widows. And so I think what, what is happening here is Jesus is the great teacher that he is is saying, hey guys, this is just a foreshadowing of what you are expected to do when I leave you here. When I'm not here, you can't send the crowds away. You, you, you can't just say, go on your way, figure it out yourselves. Because you, as Paul would later pick up on a metaphor in the New Testament, are going to be my hands and feet. You are going to be my body. You are going to be my representatives here on earth. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us as it was in the original disciples, that we are the ones through whom God most often does miraculous things. We are the ones through whom God most often provides his compassion. We can never forget that. It's a tremendous responsibility and opportunity that we have to provide for the spiritual and, yes, in some cases, physical needs of the world around us. Why? Not, not just so we can simply say that we're nice and here's some good food. No, but so that we can point people to the provider. So that we can point people to the one who brings the provision, even though we might physically bring it and we might physically speak it, but it's not of us. It comes from the provider. And it's our job to make that known. And so for, for, for these disciples, this is a tremendous test of faith. And so they said to him, again, we only have five loaves here and two fish. By the way, this story is recorded in all four Gospels. And I would encourage you to go, go read the other accounts. And some of the Gospel writers give more details and tell us a little bit more about what's happening here. Matthew is pretty succinct. He's pretty concise. But the disciples just say, look... Okay, Jesus, we hear you, but there's five pieces of bread, five loaves of bread, and two fish. I just love how Jesus responds to them. He, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, figure it out, guys. He doesn't say, oh, my gosh, you guys are just foolish. He says, okay, bring them to me. Bring them to me. And he tells the crowds to sit down on the grass. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing. You see, again, Matthew is very concerned also with Trinitarian theology. He's very concerned to help us understand that God exists as one, but in three persons. That God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all of the time, all of them fully God, all of them fully operational in our salvation. Most profoundly at the baptism of Jesus, you see, God speaking from heaven, God the Father, the Son being baptized, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. But even right here, even right here, you have Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the God-man, looking up to heaven and speaking to his Father. Asking for provision. Asking the Father to do what only the Father could do. So he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. And now at this point, at this point, it's, it's important to note that nobody yet sees the miracle in that. It's very common, just like in our day, for the head of household to say a blessing over a meal. And so Jesus, as the rabbi, as the teacher, as the one who spoke with authority, he just was giving a blessing. And so again, the disciples, I don't think, are, are even clued in to what is about to happen. And the truth is, we're not given many details. What does it say? He broke the loaves. 
and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. They began to serve the people. In verse 20, and this is tremendous. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So some, some scholars say there could have been as, as many as 20,000 people there. And so while the crowds experienced a miracle, I want us to zoom back in here on the disciples. Remember, that's, that's with whom we can most relate. If we claim to be a disciple, if we claim to be a follower, we can most relate to these disciples. I would submit to you that this miracle was done primarily for their benefit. Primarily for the benefit of those followers of Christ and then the followers of Christ who would come after them even until this day to strengthen and encourage our faith. Sure, the crowds benefited. They were fed and the Bible says they were satisfied. You know, Aaron, this joker, sends me a picture of these carnitas. And if you've been to Mexico, just have a praise the Lord moment for the carnitas, okay? That's reason enough you should consider going to Mexico. So Aaron sends me this picture, and it's like one of those Instagram pictures where like, they pose the food, you know, and it doesn't even look real. And uh, I was really um, jealous and upset about it. But those carnitas, they satisfy you, okay? Now, some of the meals we had in Mexico, Ellie, can I get an amen if you're in here? Or James, some of those meals didn't satisfy. But the carnitas, y'all, I'm telling you, I'm talking too much about them. I'm, I'm starting to get unspiritual. But, but listen, there is a difference between eating and being satisfied, isn't there? All of us know that. All of us have had meals where we just thought, well, I mean, that gave me energy. <laughs> well, that, you know, I had to have lunch somehow. Oh, no. But there's an entirely different story. When you are satisfied. These crowds were satisfied. And I would submit to you that many of them, there were 20,000 people there. Many of them had no clue what had happened. I don't know what they thought. I don't know if they thought, man, these, these disciples of Jesus, these are a prepared bunch. <laughs> they, they came with satchels full of food. That's awesome. But you know who would not have missed the message? The disciples. I do not know how it happened. The Bible, the, the, the biblical writers do not tell us how it happened. But somehow or another, the, every time they went to a person, every time they went to a family group, there was more bread and more fish. Every single time. Such to the point, such to the point that there were 12 baskets left over. That's a remarkable message to send to those disciples and to that crowd. Because, again, looking back into the Old Testament, 12 is a pretty significant number. We don't want to make too much of, of these kind of things in, in the Scripture. Sometimes numbers are just numbers. But in this case, they speak to us about the fullness of provision that God had for his people Israel. Why can we say that? Because there were 12 tribes in Israel. That's why Jesus chose 12 disciples. You see this fleshed out later in the book of Revelation but make no mistake, to these 12 Jewish disciples, to these 12 Jewish men who saw that Jesus not only provided enough for all of Israel, he provided more than they needed. And so while I think it would be wrong for us to presume that God is always going to give us our physical needs because 
brothers and sisters, there are, are people around the world who claim Christ and who follow him faithfully who cannot claim that promise. And so we need to move up into the spiritual realm here and say this is not necessarily about food. The food here is a metaphor for the faithful and abundant provision of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That is what this food is a metaphor for us today. And so the question that we need to ask is, do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that Jesus Christ is more than we need? Do we actually believe that he can provide for us salvation, but also in John 10.10, an abundant life? That he can provide for us rescue from hell, but also a mission to live. Also a purpose in life. Too often, too often we just think, well, he's provided me that, but I'm just kind of left to do the rest of my own. Not at all. Not at all. And so I want to encourage us as we close here with a, with a word from Revelation. Because as, as this story looks backwards to the Old Testament, I believe also it points forward to the New creation to what's going to happen when Jesus returns when he comes back to earth for a second time when he restores all things when he inaugurates his kingdom this will be true for all of us not only will we be satisfied spiritually we will be satisfied physically and in every other way and so if you're discouraged today and if you think I just I just can't believe that God's not providing for me he's not giving me healing he, he hasn't given me the job that I need he hasn't brought reconciliation into my life in the way that I want. I want to encourage you that there will be a day, brothers and sisters, where you will be able to answer yes to all of those questions. Where you will have baskets and baskets and baskets of leftover because God has provided for you so abundantly. And that day is right here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. The scriptures tell us they shall hunger no more. Neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so, brothers and sisters, if right now you have difficulty, even as I do sometimes, believing that this story is here for you, believing that the person of Jesus Christ can provide all that you need, and then some, look forward to the day when that truth will be a reality forever. When that truth will be so real to you that there is no way you could deny it. When that truth will be so real to you that there is no way that you could ignore it. You will not be hungry. You will not be thirsty. The sun will not strike you. You will have living water and you will not shed tears. Friends, that is a day that I long for. And so this morning, if you are a Christian, if you claim to follow Christ, if you are a believer in the person of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him for, for your salvation, look forward to this day. And friend, if you are not a believer, if you have rejected the person of Christ, 
If you have wondered about him, if you have said, no, he, he can't provide all for me. This is for you too. This is for you too. This beckons you to come. This beckons you to believe in him and trust in him and hope and trust in the day that this will be real for you as well. This is the invitation Jesus gives to all of us. To come and experience his compassionate provision. Not only for our present, but also for our eternal future. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength to trust you. We 